We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to a special episode of the Hearing Architecture Podcast made in collaboration with the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival, otherwise known as APAF. In keeping with the APAF 2021 theme, How New Is Now, in this episode we're speaking about architectural education and how traditional knowledge can find a place in the modern university. Our special guests in this episode are Carol Go-Sam, Helen Lockhead, Aaron Peters, Erwin V. Ray and Georgia Burks. Carol Gosam is currently a lecturer in the School of Architecture at the University of Queensland. Carol has engaged in research across design-related fields, Aboriginal architecture, Indigenous-led housing management, policy, architectural identity themes, public facilities and civic space. Professor Helen Lockhead is an Australian architect, urban and landscape designer, and the Dean of Built Environment at the University of New South Wales. Helen has held a number of influential positions, including the Executive Director roles at Sydney Olympic Park Authority and Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority, as well as Deputy Government Architect in New South Wales. Her career has focused on the inception, planning, design and delivery of complex multidisciplinary projects and public works, ranging from a five-year city improvements program for the City of Sydney leading up to the 2000 Olympics to major urban renewal and waterfront projects. Aaron Peters is an architect and director at the award-winning firm Vokes & Peters, based in Brisbane. He graduated from the Queensland University of Technology in 2005 and was awarded the Board of Architects of Queensland Prize along with the QIA Medallion. The following year, he was awarded the AIA Glenn Merkett Student Prize for his graduate design work. In 2007, he travelled abroad, spending three years working for Elise and Morrison in London and Kerry Hill Architects in Singapore before returning to Brisbane in 2011. Erwin V. Ray was Global Excellence Professor at Kyoto Institute of Technology and head of the Graduate School of Architecture and Design in 2012 for two years. In addition to this, Erwin has also been the editor of the influential magazine A Plus U, Architecture and Urbanism, since 1996. We're also joined by Georgia Burks, who is an associate editor at Architecture Media. She is a proud descendant of the Kamelaroi and Dungari people. Georgia completed her Bachelor of Architectural Design at the University of Queensland, graduating as valedictorian. She has written a number of reviews, participated in panels across Australia, and is a co-curator of the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. Welcome to the APAF and Hearing Architecture episode, How New Is Now in Architectural Education. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. We've got a very special episode for APAF, between APAF and Hearing Architecture, where we're going to be speaking with Erwin V. Ray, Carol Go-Sam, Helen Lockhead and Aaron Peters about um, architectural education and what's uh, being done in Australia and abroad 
to teach young people how to become the next generation of architects. So thank you everyone for joining us today. The first subject that I'd like to talk about is architecture education in general. When people learn about how long it takes to study architecture, uh, they hear, you know, it's a minimum of five years, you get two degrees, and that's only before you then get to start in the workforce. And then you've still got to get your experience to become a registered architect. Carol, you're, you're working at UQ and uh, you've got one-on-one experience with these students. What do you think is the major benefit of studying architecture for such a long time? And what do you think architecture students should be aiming to get from their time studying for such a, a long period at university? Well, um, great question. I think like thinking about length of time, it seems like five years is not enough in some instances. Um, but there, are, there have been sort of pushes and pulls to, to discuss and debate shortening the degree to four years. I know that there's been conversations. I've not been entirely across those. But I think in terms of, you know, the demands on architectural education, so we have environmental and ecological capacities and competencies that we require of students. We also require cross-cultural competency in, and also the knowledge that we expect, you know, we expect curious, engaged students who, who will continue learning. This is the ideal beyond uh, university. And I think that without that exposure at university and, in, and an immersion in, into, you know, history, theory, a whole range of things, you know, when you go forward into practice, if you don't have those interests um, and develop them at university as a practitioner, it comes to us, you know, we like not to think that they come to a screeching halt. So the, the length of time for, for the degree and the maturity from the first three years to when you return as master's students, I think is a, a very important one. I think the debate has been is that the rewards Oh, there's often a comparison between other degrees. <laughs> the, the rewards um, in practice, um, you know, in terms of uh, financially, you know, and, and lifestyle as well have, have not sort of um, been considered as great comparative to, to other professions. So I think that it's almost, you know, survival of the most inspired, passionate, <laughs> I won't say fittest because I think that's going to really frame architecture in a way <laughs> we, wouldn't, we wouldn't like it to be seen. But I'd like to hear what Helen and Erwin think too as, as deans of faculties because, you know, you know, they have a different perspective on an oversight, I guess, in terms of entire courses and degrees and, and, and the types of graduates that uh, we're producing in Australia or overseas in Singapore, you know, so. Uh, thank you. It's nice to have this conversation with all of you. Five years seems not enough for everyone, I think. And uh, I think the students who come to decide on studying architecture are somehow determined that they will study architecture. In the Singapore University of Technology and Design, uh, SUTD, as we say, it seems like the education is quite distinct because it's very different from the other system that we have 
because of the mission that to create innovators and maybe uh, leaders in the use of technology. And so the emphasis also on interdisciplinary learning. Uh, so the students actually work with uh, the other students, the architecture students, what we call the other pillars, as, as we say. So uh, in the fresh more, as we call it, the first year, because we operate in three terms, uh, they actually all study together. Uh, they all come to the university and then they will decide whether they will go into architecture or whether they will go into engineering product development, whether they will go into engineering systems uh, design or information systems design or design an AI. Uh, so uh, usually the students who apply and indicate that they would want to do architecture usually stay with us and then they would go into the architecture pillar. And one part of the thing about the, the education is that the emphasis on new technologies, computation and the digital transformation that we're going through. And along with it, when the minister asked me, oh, so are your students digitally competent? I said to him that they're digitally competent with the heart because the emphasis on the humanities, arts and social sciences, history theory is also uh, uh, given to them. And so they go through this in a four years bachelor's program. And then after the bachelor's of science program, uh, bachelor of science in architecture, sustainable design, they will go into an eight month structured internship. And while also being in the undergraduate program, they already go into uh, internship into different places that they want to go to in between the terms when we have our holidays. And after that structured internship of eight months, they come back and then they will do the master's, the master's thesis that they, they want to do. And so that means that it will complete the five years. So if you look at it, if you do the mathematics, it may not really be five years, it could be beyond five years. And then after that, they will go into, again, for them, if they want to take the professional examination, they, uh, the two years minimum and, and to satisfy that requirement. However, the structured internship also helps them in a way if they satisfy the logbook, et cetera, to satisfy the two-year minimum requirement. And so we have advisors actually to help them uh, from the profession to actually uh, see how they're doing in terms of the preparation for the professional exam. So I, I think that Singapore in a way uh, is uh, very distinct in that way in the program that is being uh, done. And of course, I also mentioned that interdisciplinary emphasis whereby the students actually work with the students from the other pillar and also with the industry partners, because besides the option studios that we have that deal with the sustainable and the climate change issues that we face, they actually have a capstone project, which is a problem given by the industry. The industry pays money to the university and would have the IP for all these for the students from the different pillars, as we call them. And so the students from architecture, from computing science, from engineering product actually would work together to solve a problem given by the industry. So um, more or less that would be the, 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 the system in Singapore, which I think would also contrast to the system in Japan where I also came from, whereby you have the four years and then the two years masters. And normally in Japan, usually the students would be asking me, what's the difference between the Japanese students and then the Singaporean students? 
I would say that the Japanese students actually do what they want to do because they are on a four-year holiday when they're in their undergraduate courses. And then the, the Singapore students are all very diligent and very competent. So uh, maybe that's uh, one way to, to describe uh, this uh, situation that I am encountering and have encountered. Thank you. I think probably I might sort of pick up where we were left off with Erwin because I think what's really important in an architectural education is um, exposure to the other disciplines because as he very rightly summed up, is the kind of complexity that an architect needs to understand and embrace in their skill set. So there's not many disciplines that actually have to cover all bases with a degree of knowledge and, and depth to ask the right questions. Even if they're not an engineer, they need to be able to use that engineer to actually get to the right outcome, whether it's the cost planner to make sure that the costs are cut from the right place and retained in, in the places which are of high value to the architect and the ultimate outcome. So the breadth of knowledge that you need to know is extraordinary. So I, I don't think there's any argument from most people that you need that time at university just to actually get touch the surface. You have to be right across the humanitarian and the human humanistic sides of architecture. You have need to understand new technologies. And, of course, in this day and age, you really need to understand the environment and the ecosystem in which you're working. It's only a very small part of what you learn. Like so, I think this tussle between industry and um, the academy is always going to be there because we educate students to actually bring an inquiring mind, to learn to research, to think from first principles, all the things which I value in uh, in staff and employees and teams. And, and officers often value someone who's technologically savvy, someone who can, you know, is a, going to be a CAD jockey and immediately and immediately employable. Well, that's where the partnership between industry and um, academia comes into play. We need to work together. Some of these skills are best learned in the office environment where you can apply those technical skills in a very real and tangible way. And students pick it up, or new graduates pick it up very, very quickly. But the, the kind of the bigger, more existential questions about theory, history and theory, and why do we do this? And why is climate the most pressing issue of our times need to be interrogated from a very much of the first principles point of view at university. So I do think we need to ensure that students are exposed to interdisciplinary because it's always going to work as an architect across disciplines. And at UNSW in Sydney, we also have a fully comprehensive um, faculty and every single student is required to study built environment interdisciplinary learning. They kind of the before those courses is feel and every single student has to study those and often they do it kicking and screaming and I just want to study architecture I don't want to work with these construction managers or these landscape architects or what the plan is that you know they're really boring and I've just just finished this you know summer super studio which was an interdisciplinary studio and the planners were all going to like drop out because they didn't understand what the designers were on about but, you know, they did persevere and I gave, you know, I talked them down from the tree or the ledge or whatever it is. And um, they persevered and they did fantastic work. And, and you know, when we did focus groups last year, we, we interviewed graduates and alumni from all our disciplines. And they were very different ages of um, being out and about. Some of them were, you know, two or three years and some of them were 15 years out. 
every single one of those students who had done built environment interdisciplinary learning, which start with, you know, shared courses in first year and shared studios and, and these sorts of experiences throughout their, their learning, that it was the best, most fundamentally important course structure that they did in their program. So it was not about studying pure architecture, but it was understanding how to work across disciplines and work with others, which actually stood them in good stead. And so I'm with you, Erwin, as a dean. I sort of I feel like it's, you know, I'm trying to get my students to eat their greens, you know, like a, this, you don't know what's good for you until you you know what's good for you. And it has paid back. So I'm, I'm very pleased that it's becoming more and more broadly recognised as being fundamental to an architectural education because an architect cannot be across every everything. The world is too complex and we need to know how to work with others to actually get the best and more holistic outcomes in the built environment for tomorrow's world. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you were mentioning you know, students when they work on super studio projects where they're still still within the walls of the university, they're starting to collaborate with the allied professionals. And it's really important that when they do internships, they actually get into a practice and understand what the job is, is going to be so that they can use those skills of, you know, working in groups and working in teams of people who aren't necessarily just designers and architects. Aaron, I mean, as an as a employer of, of graduates, how are you seeing the graduates who are coming out? And as, as someone who's producing such great work, is there anything where you are seeing graduates of architecture who might be missing something or have got a lot of skills that people who graduated 10 or 15 years ago might not have? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Look, I, I think most employers that I speak to seem to say similar things, and that is that it, it takes 12 months to two years to really start getting a graduate paying off in an office. And on the face of it, that's something that is kind of worrying, but it's also kind of understandable. Um, and I think I think it's understandable for the reasons that um, some of the other guests have already touched upon, that what students need to learn at university is a very broad range of skill sets, not necessarily in any great depth, but they need to be a generalist. And that's quite hard and that takes time. I think the other point is that universities, perhaps more so than offices, need to be able to teach students how to think like an architect. And I think Helen referred to the um, developing an inquiring mind. And I think that's very true. So from our point of view, we don't necessarily expect that someone's going to come into the office, sit in their chair and immediately have a commercial output. That's fine. But we expect them to be able to think like an architect, to be able to, to solve problems, to be able to find workarounds, to be able to be dynamic in the, in the way that they approach problem solving. Because once you're in an office, you have to do those things, but you don't necessarily have always the time that you might like to sit down and, and reflect upon the solving of problems um, either in advance or after the problem has been solved. So I think that it, it's, it's always going, there's always going to be a tension between having job-ready graduates and having um, inquiring minds, um, as it were. So we, we, we kind of take that on board. I, I think in terms of how that has shifted over time. I studied at QUT, graduated in the early 2000s, and at that point QUT was running a program which was a part-time course. We worked full-time in an office. So 
I had had three years full-time work experience when I graduated, so I was in a much, much different position to what graduates might find themselves now. It was also a point in time when year out seemed to be more prevalent. Um, a lot of universities, are, as far as I'm aware, now give students the option to move directly from a bachelor course into a master's course. So you don't necessarily have graduates coming out who've spent any kind of significant amount of time in an office. And I suppose as a result of that, QUT changing its format, and we used to hire a lot of QUT grads back in the day, um, and the year out becoming more of a thing of the past, we definitely are noticing a shift in the, the, the skill sets that, that grads have. And that definitely has an impact on our business because we have to invest more and more time in getting people to a point where they're kind of fluent in the language of a commercial office and um, they're just comfortable being in a chair and um, pursuing the kind of tasks that we need to to get an invoice out at the end of the month. So, look, I, I don't necessarily have a, a kind of a resolution in mind for that, but what I would say is that I don't necessarily think that the idea of the ambitions of practices and the ambitions of the academy need to be mutually exclusive I think that there is a balance that, that can be struck and maybe that's something that we might unpack as we continue the conversation. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of conversation in architectural education about as the profession develops, there's still some core knowledge that architects need and as new and amazing things come out, what could you possibly take out to fit in this new information or skills that the students need? And like you were saying there where you had the option to do a part-time course and, and work full-time, have any of you started to see that the students who really take an individual's approach and say, well, I know that I love stadium design or I love gallery design, that if they start to really focus in and, and hone in on that interest, that that can help them almost tailor-make their education so that when they come out, they feel prepared to start applying to those firms that they that they admire and, and love? Uh, yes. I noticed that in the Japanese education, the students who actually know what they want and then they gear themselves to doing what they want, they do very well and eventually they create their own studios. Uh, they, they would know who to go to, to study with. And, and, and so I think it's also important that they know what they want and then they, they do and they achieve what they want. While for the majority, they seem not to know what they want, but I guess it's the school's uh, maybe uh, role to actually provide the platform to create opportunities for them to see the world and then to respond to it. And so uh, creating programs that will actually uh, allow them to do this. While as, as Aaron was saying that they should understand what it is to be an architect, how to think like an architect, and then how to actually uh, do things. And so uh, providing them with the necessary skills and tools to actually do that. And, and that has to be done by the school, I think. But as they go out also, so uh, by, by giving them uh, opportunities to go out, so not only in terms of the architectural offices, but to the world itself, it is very important for them to go to the world. So we have these uh, things which we call independent activity programs. So we organize uh, trips for them to actually go maybe to different places. As, as you know, sometimes Singapore can be small, but even within Singapore, we 
or organize things. I'm sorry that I seem to be shifting from Japan to Singapore, uh, mixing them up. But yeah, we, we offer them these opportunities to see the world. So like, for example, we have an independent activity program that brings them to Vietnam. And then they end up convincing one of the private companies like Capital Land to actually sponsor building a kindergarten in Vietnam. And, and so uh, this uh, work that they start, they bring back and then they, they start a studio with that. And then again, it gets into the discussion of the how you build it and then also the social implications of what you are building. And, and so this is one part of that. And then another part would be the question of the new technologies that we have, the new tools that we have, and then how would it would compare to the established tools and then the old tools that we have. We have now, data, machine learning, AI, and then how would this uh, impact how we do things in the future? And, and, and so I think that it is very much part of the discussion also like imagining what a cyber physical campus would be. And especially with the COVID-19, we are not allowed to go anywhere. And so if we're doing a studio in Rome, how do we create that studio in Rome to be possible while you're in Singapore? So that, that was an interesting question, I think. And then, so I think the augmented reality, virtual reality and the mixed reality that are presented to us allow us to imagine what can be possible. We even had a studio that was uh, based in Japan and the studio master is in Japan and the students are in, in Singapore. So how do you bridge this? So uh, I think that uh, by opening these opportunities for, for the students I, and, and the experiences that are, are given to them and then the faculty, I think it opens the possibilities of imagining the things that we have now and what are the beautiful things about it. And then the things that can be possible in the future without forgetting that what we're doing is actually for people to enjoy and to actually give them a better life, maybe to imagine a sustainable world, as, as we would say, and a better world. So, so I guess maybe that's how I, I would say that we're trying to bridge also, not make a distinction between practice and, and, and the school, but be mindful of what mission we have to actually prepare them to be good architects. I might, I might, I might just chime in there. I, you know, in our school, we have like 150 full-time academics, but we have four to 500 part-time casual architects coming in from industry. So the, the partnership with industry is very firmly entrenched in um, a, a cooperative learning model. It's not the, but there's more, there's, there's, you know, think institutions like TEXA that have requirements for learning outcomes, which we need to comply with as a university, which are different from the AACA accreditation requirements, which are different from practice requirements. So there's a lot of balancing in terms of what students are taught. But I do think it's also incumbent on us in, in an educational environment to prepare students for worlds unknown. I mean, whether we like it or not, practice is really in the present. Practice is not preparing for the future the way we have to actually anticipate it in an academic environment. So many of our graduates will not work in ways, I mean, certainly people do not work in the ways I was educated, and yet I've had a very resilient and adaptive career because I feel like I've had the educational underpinning which has allowed me to pivot into new and different roles. So I've, I've worked across many disciplines. I've worked in government, in practice, in industry, in academia and at different levels from being a very fine grained design to, to strategic 
planning at a city level and policy making. So, you know, that's a good education. <laughs> that's something that gives you a lifelong opportunities to be able to reflect. And I think the best education is one which allows you to have in the field experience, it allows you to study internationally, it allows you to work and study. All these permutations make you more well-rounded and more fit for the future world, and which may be something we don't even know yet. I mean, when I think about how students and officers were able to pivot last year and go completely virtual, you know, when I, when I just mentioned our Sydney Urban Lab that we ran just this last couple of weeks over the summer. We had visiting lecturers from Spain and Denmark and the US, and we had students in China and India and, and the US and, and Australia in different time zones. It was pretty challenging, I have to say, <laughs> but we did it. You know what I mean? And it was extraordinary. And you would never normally be able to just get a visiting speaker. You know, before we'd get someone from town to come out to campus and speak to the class or we'd go into into town and visit them now you just sort of beam them in and you know like and I'm organizing a symposium at the moment where I've just got Professor Doshi you know the principal laureate from India to participate you know but based on the fact that I've you know I know him and I've met him and and I thought there's no way we're going to get him to do this on Zoom and he said yes and I'm like going oh you know, fantastic. So suddenly the world becomes very small and very accessible and the possibilities are endless. But we have to we have to know what we don't know and imagine the unimaginable. And I think, the, you know, this is what our students will be facing in their career. I, I just wanted to add that as Helen was saying, yes, it's true that the industry is very much in the education because like in our case also in Singapore, about 50% of the faculties actually what we call them adjunct because they're in the industry, they're practicing as architects or planners. And then usually the problems that we would have for the studios, what we call the sustainable design option studios would usually be crafted with the state agencies because they would usually have problems that they want to be solved like the Urban Redevelopment Authority would want to do this. So we've established strategic partnerships with them or even the MCCY to study the Ministry of Culture and Youth to, to study how the youth would actually be using spaces. And, and so again, using all these different new tools that we have to understand better with the data and then simulation by machine learning. And then of course, you cannot just depend on something that is virtual itself, but you have to go on site and then touch the flesh and then look at people also. And then as Helen was saying, yes, in a way the COVID actually brought us new possibilities because as he said, like he could invite Professor Doshi to actually be in the conversation with the students, which I think would be very uh, difficult before because we would want him to be there physically. But now with like us having this conversation now, you are in Australia, I'm in Singapore, uh, it makes it possible in a way. So it opens new possibilities. Uh, and, and then I think the students actually realize this too. Put a question to Carol here, just going back to talking about the interdisciplines that architecture is engaged with. Carol, do you see um, or do you know of schools that are having interdisciplinary education with architecture that involves social sciences or having the ability to then connect with First Nations communities, community members or elders? 
is there a way that schools can reach out to these communities to bring that social economic into architectural education? I guess there's there's different schools that have different programs that have either studios or outreach with First Nations as as clients, you know. But there, in terms of probably the best model is in Canada. There's a, a school there that has an in, entirely First Nations focus and actually students internationally come to that university to be ex- exposed to the First Nations perspectives, um, have elders and residents, a whole range of things, and all of the projects and programs have a First Nation interface, and but also they get a broad architectural education as well, and so that's a small school. In Australia, that model is not very prevalent, but, you know, at UQ we approach it where we have students are exposed to studio in, in the undergraduate or in the master's levels, and they do that um, in, in the undergraduate level. It tends to be not by freedom of choice, they're, they're compulsory components and they may come across either a second year studio or a third year studio that has a First Nations focus and, and, and interface often with a real Indigenous client. In the master's studios, um, it can be incorporation of First Nations people either from within the university structure or communities. Yeah, so, but that tends to be not something that's set you know so it can be as opportunities arise so and I think like some of the you know we've all talked about the sort of tensions between architectural practice and a focus on having uh, students that are employable work ready and I note Aaron's sort of you know the two years time frame you know for a for a small practice that is you know where economic income and you know the economy of running a practice and requiring practices to heavily invest in students to make them producers under that economic framework well I think universities I think are economic they have an economic model as well and we tend to sort of forget that in we see them sort of a you know universities as these ideal spaces in some instances but behind them are really business models. So it's like, how do those two business models meet? And for First Nations, you know, issues, it's certainly something that's becoming much more prevalent in Australia where we have um, institutional demand for having that component of briefs being addressed, particularly when it's a public-facing project or, you know, student-facing project or, or whatever face it is, you know, how can we have inclusivity and diversity um, in the way that architectural programs are meeting, you know, diverse groups, but also in Australia where First Nations people are uh, an absolute minority, but they have sort of sovereignty rights and issues. So I think, you know, it's a really interesting um, time to be in, but we're finding that rather than shrinking, that institutions, whether they're higher education, health, government, Um, They're really embracing that and they're finding perhaps that there's a lack in the the profession to be able to meet those demands and needs um, because either through their educational process they had limited or zero exposure and so that people in practice are then realising, you know, 
they're realizing as what Helen said, what they don't know and where where that they need to go and get some sort of expert sort of guidance and help and on how do you form those partnerships um, and how do you actually meet the needs that the institutions are, are setting there across projects. I think that uh, what Carl has shared is uh, very uh, important, I think. Uh, despite the fact that we're a very small school in SUTD, we have this section called social architecture. And then it actually works with the community and then it works with the uh, like aging and all these problems that we have in the society. So the students are also encouraged to learn to be entrepreneurial. So it's one of the missions that the school actually wants to nurture in them that they be entrepreneurial. And in order to uh, expose them to this, again, the, the school would be working with the communities in Singapore. So we work, we have one of the adjunct uh, professors in our, our school as the mayor of one of the the cities in Singapore. Well, this Singapore is a city, but we have also the smaller cities. And so uh, the questions of sustainability, the question of aging, et cetera, and are addressed in all these. So as you were saying that the students actually uh, face this and then some of them eventually would go into this maybe voluntary work or creating their offices to actually maybe improve society. So, so, so you would have this. And then in order to broaden it in the international perspective, we also work like, for example, in the Inujima project, which is a project by Kasuyo Sejima. So the Yokohama Graduate School of Architecture brings these uh, people from different parts of the world to go to Inujima, which is part of the Seto Uchi, the Renaissance, which has Naoshima, Teshima, and Inujima is the smallest among them. And then it's something like Kasuyo Sejima has taken it upon herself to, to actually look after the island because the population is about maybe it should be less than 50 people at the moment. And then the average age is about 60 years old to 80 years old. And so the students would usually spend time there to actually understand and then interact with the people, help them uh, maybe build the structures, maintain the structures, etc. And then they go and, and come back to Singapore to actually work on the project itself, identifying certain issues that could be worked on, and then maybe finding people who would be helping them actually fund this or maybe support this so that it can be made to reality. One of the beautiful things in that arrangement also is the fact that it involves not only the students from Japan and Singapore, but also the students from different parts of the world, because Sejima would usually bring her students from Milan, from Vienna. And, and so the interaction between the students is uh, fascinating because they get to understand how people from different places because of the different backgrounds that we would have, how we see things and then how we react to things. And then when they go to the island, the students from Singapore also feel like, oh, uh, the Wi-Fi is somehow disconnected. And so they experience a certain silence in their life. And then so I ask them, how was it? And they say it's quite transformative. So. I think in, in Singapore, there is this little niche that actually works on this, what we call the social architecture, to encourage students to become more entrepreneurial and then to respond to the needs of, of the society, maybe for, for the ones that really need help in the society also. And, and even the kindergarten in Vietnam was also part of this. So it's that social architecture aspect to build a better world. Yeah, no, I wholly endorse that. I think, I mean, we, I had a very socially conscious uh, education at Sydney University back in the day. I won't even say when it was. 
and was an urban activist. But I think the social agency stream that we have in our architecture program is very strong and very popular amongst the students. But it's so popular that many, many of the studios have that same um, social imperative and agenda, even if they're not part of the stream. And so the social agency stream focuses on the urban condition. Uh, So like might be homelessness in urban Sydney, for example, or it could be in um, Indigenous communities. So it's always has an Australian focus. But many of our international studios are very similar. We do have a studio that we do in India, and I'm part of a not-for-profit which builds preschools in India in the informal settlements. And having taken students who are going there and doing a collaborative students with students from SEPT, um, and then taking them to where we build the, the kindergartens, um, which is not part of the university work, but we get them, we sort of recruit them into doing that as volunteers. It's incredibly confronting for them, um, but also life-changing. And it really tells you at the very, very pointy end of the problem, the power of architecture to change people's lives. And when you look at the outcomes we've had in those little tiny buildings, which all built with recycled materials and found materials, it's unskilled workers, there's capacity building, there's the opportunity of making a delightful environment in, some, in a place where people live in humpies, essentially, um, for the children to go to school, to be educated, to actually have a meal in the middle of the day so their parents can go to work and make an income and for them to actually get into the mainstream school system, you really understand what architecture can do at a very fundamental level. So I do think... The social imperative needs to be wrapped up in our education and less more less on the artefact, but on the power of the artefact to be transformative to people's lives. And I think then all the shortcomings of architecture, like low income, long hours, and all those things sort of pale into insignificance because you know that you're making a difference in the world. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that the other day um, when I was talking to some younger architects and graduates and when we're in the in the insular environment of an architectural institution, you know, we're we're learning every day for such a long time how great architecture can be and the benefits of what architecture is and the value of it. That when we can sit down and talk to people who aren't architects, we start to almost speak in this archi-speak language where I think because we've been speaking with other architects for so long, almost metaphysical pieces of architecture um, understanding is left unsaid. So I wanted to ask you, Aaron, I mean, is that something that you have noticed that as soon as someone's fresh out of university, because I mean, you were such a high performing student yourself, that once we're out of that, uh, almost an echo chamber within architectural institutions, we have to have to learn how to speak to other people about the benefits of architecture? Yeah, I, I definitely think that communication is really key. And it's it's no wonder that we tie ourselves in knots um, during our education, trying to find a way to articulate architecture to other people because often ideas can be ephemeral and describing a space is really complex and that's why we use a range of different mediums to do it. So we use, you know, computers and drawings and physical models and all sorts of means to try and supplement the way that we communicate about our buildings. And we don't always necessarily understand them ourselves because they're that complex. Um, you know, we, we work a lot with narrative and storytelling in our practice. It's a device that we use 
to try and get better briefing from our clients. So we, we work with what we call a narrative brief. And we've found over the years without setting out to that our practice is very much related to the idea of storytelling within the office and also with our clients. So we have found, I mean, it's hard to have perspective on how successful or otherwise you might be at doing that, but I'd like to think that we've found a better way of communicating with our clients by trying to find ideas that are more genuine perhaps at least to us or that seem to resonate with people outside of our practice and when you're working with those kind of ideas ideas that have actual concrete outcomes for people's lives I find it's a hell of a lot easier to talk about architecture so for instance when I was a student you know there would be a lot of architectural theory that was used as a way of um propping up a particular design proposition that might have been presented at a crit and that's fine and those ideas definitely have value and they definitely have um, relevance but when you're sitting across the table from a client who hasn't received that education you need to find a way to take those ideas and make them tangible for someone who is spending probably the most amount of money that they've ever spent on anything in investing in you and your ideas and giving you their trust um, that you will do something appropriate with their money. How new arrivals into our studio fit into that, um, it's kind of hard to say. We tend to, I don't think we have a formal process for allowing people to integrate. It's more that people come to the office, they get thrown in the deep end um, like you do in any job. And I think we just develop a sense of how someone's going. And at some point, we find ourselves kind of turning to that person more and more as their confidence grows and they start taking on more and more responsibility and showing more and more initiative within projects. And I think part of that getting a sense of whether or not that person is ready is noticing a shift in the way that they communicate within the office and observing the way that they communicate with clients. If I'm sitting in a client meeting and I'm with a colleague and they're trying to describe an idea and they're using the kind of archi-speak that you're referring to, Dan, then I'm thinking you're not quite ready to embark on this, this part of the journey yet. And, and it's, it's not as if we, you know, we have some sort of review of, of that performance. I think it just over time people start to um, imbibe that by being in the office and, and observing the way that Stuart and I might run the job or how we might relate to clients. Yeah, and I, I feel like maybe when you're just starting to get to the end of your all of the years in architecture school, might start to tweak that every single time you present to a different lecturer, you have to almost use a different language with that lecturer so that you're letting them know that, no, we're speaking the same language here with this this project. And I guess, you know, on, on houses, super, super personal. You know, we're definitely talking to them about family memory, family experiences. And then, Helen, when you get to government, then there's got to be a whole other considerations when you're talking about actual proposals for a project. I mean, we can't just say to to people in government, we should go with this proposal because it's going to make the world a better place. We have to <laughs> break it down into, like Aaron was saying, a narrative that they can understand. So yeah, how are we how are we getting students to understand all of all of those different complexities? Well, I think one thing about working in government or working with public interest clients is that they often are not expert clients and it's not their money and it's not their project. They are actually a vehicle to deliver a project. 
So engaging them in the process to get the best possible building, the best possible outcome is incredibly important because it's, it may not be a passion project. I'm here to deliver. And so you can engage them by appealing to the public policy or the public interest quotient so, or getting more, more value for the dollar. So I'll use two examples that we did um, when I was in the government architect's office. There was a, an imperative from FACS, Family and Community Services in New South Wales to get more Indigenous children to come to preschool, pretty much similar to the, the Indian Anganwadis too. If you get children to preschool, it bodes well for their education. So the, what we tried to do was actually make it the best preschools we could possibly do in these rural situations with a very, very, very lean budget. And the way we did that was actually approaching health because we worked right across government and we knew clients in all different departments. And we said, why don't we actually make the family health centre or, you know, the, what used to be called the baby health centre at the preschool and that way the mums will come because they usually have you know little babies as well and then they it's a family health center so you can check their ears their eyes because there's often a lot of particular health problems related to indigenous communities so you could do like a holistic health center so that way we actually could increase the budget we hit two sort of government priorities in terms of health outcomes in indigenous communities we had educational outcomes in Indigenous communities, and it was the, they were the most beautiful places in these rural towns that all the white people wanted to come. And so we bridged the divide between the haves and the have-nots as well. So you got this much greater integration of the, the white community and the Indigenous community because they all came together. And, like, we didn't necessarily anticipate all the social outcomes and health outcomes and learning outcomes that were going to be conceptualised by that those projects. We did 10 in all, but it was only when the pudding was in the eating that we saw actually what had um, come out of it that I felt like they were quite remarkable and they were like such small budget projects, but we just used every possible avenue to, to touch on the, the public policy agendas to actually make great places. And another one we did, which was in... Broken Hill of all places, teacher housing, and they used to just build four-bedroom houses in these these remote communities because they, the teachers would come from all over and they didn't have any rental housing market in those places. So instead of building um, 10 four-bedroom houses, I said, well, what about if we do a focus group? And we found, you know, there's a singles, there's, you know, blended families like the Brady Bunch, and then there's someone who's got a walking stick and has, you know, physically disabled, and then there's the gay couple, and then there's the single parent, and you're going, so why are we building all these four-bedroom houses? And so we developed this type where they're like duplexes, and so you could turn them into three plus one, which is fully accessible with a fully accessible unit or two plus two or four bedroom units. And we actually double the amount of housing by thinking about them as being flexible units. And then it became a model for all teaching housing in all the different, you know, rural communities or rural towns in New South Wales and enabled us to do a whole lot of very ingenious housing typologies, which then were adapted to urban situations. And then so you could, so the, the point of my whole rave just then is actually working with clients who don't have a passion about 
architecture or passionate about the project. They just want the policy outcome. And if you can say that we're actually adding better value and we're providing more innovative, adaptable, resilient environments that are going to serve you for multiple agendas, then you've actually won the hearts of your public interest client or your, your public client. And that's where I think uh, I feel um, we made the most difference. Yeah, and I, I could imagine, Carol, that when you're working in or working with studios that have um, Indigenous communities involved as well, that there are those sort of knock-on effects that Helen was talking about where it might just be about engaging with the community and maybe um, designing a community centre for Indigenous community, but then there are lots of other knock-on effects that can help the rest of the community and also help the students actually understand that it's not just a floor, four walls and a roof that we're designing. There are, there are other implications that come from delivering these great results. Yeah, I guess there's, um, I mean, I think Helen's examples were fantastic, you know, because there's different models, you know. You know, you might have an Indigenous organisation that has no funding whatsoever that approaches a university to, to run a studio to give them some ideas to get a funding application up. And I think that's a, you know, that's a huge opportunity for, for maybe um, a not-for-profit to sort of be born out of students partnering with practices, with, with then um, institutional clients, you know, to have this really vibrant model so that we can actually realise outcomes. Because in Indigenous Australia, unfortunately, a lot of that dependency is on governments to fund programs, but sometimes government agendas can be a mismatch between what's happening with communities on the ground. And I think Helen's example provides a really good example where, you know, the government does have a program, but they haven't actually socialised that with Indigenous communities fully. And so what meets a community needs, you know, it's match, it's matching sort of healthcare, bubs checkups with sort of childcare and seeing the benefits of children having access to that, both of those services, you know, and then sort of changing trajectories, you know, in remote communities. I think that's, you know, using your thinking, your problem-solving thinking to, to actually make something that makes that leap between the government-driven agenda <laughs> and community need and desire and aspiration, I guess. And I think that there's also opportunity to, for what are community aspirations and community aspirations are often sort of mismatched, you know, with government aspirations, but there is an opportunity for that meeting. And I don't think it's explored in a, in a really great deal. We have some sort of really interesting practices that have pro bono work that work with Indigenous communities, but often they find that, and we find that a lot of this work is also done in the university space, but it often sits as a conceptual project that is never realised. And I think that there is, um, there's, there's lots of gaps there that can be filled and there is an opportunity to create alliances that are just not, you know, ideological sort of projects or nice projects for students to be exposed to, but then not realised, you know, for the community. So I think there is, a, there is an opportunity there. And I think Helen gave a couple of um, really important examples and, and that 
practices that engage in that space are really exciting practices. But I think that the hardcore economics of, of running a practice now in a, in a COVID environment, you find that when it push comes to pull, that the practices, abilities, particularly small practices to um, medium-sized practices, um, that the, that engagement with pro bono work is perhaps dwindling in tighter sort of economic circumstances. I've got a question that um, is kind of a bit of a sidestep away from this current topic, but I'm, I'm curious to get the answers from you all. And maybe, Aaron, I'll put it to you first. For me, my architectural education really shaped the way that I viewed the world. And we've talked about all of the disciplines, the complexities and the institutes that we learn about through our degrees. So my question is, can you ever be too young or too old to begin your architectural education? I, th- I think not. It certainly helps if you, if you continue to develop your architectural education post-university. And I think this is something that came up in the discussion earlier, and that is that while the degree may be long, five years and a lot of hex to pay back, something to think about if you're at the older end of the spectrum, and the remuneration may be low, if you get through that five years of your degree and then that's the end of your architectural education, then I think you will lead a life in architecture that is far less fulfilling than it otherwise might be. One of the things that I found in studying part-time and working full-time was that a lot of my education came from working and there are a lot of things that I might otherwise have learned at university that I wasn't able to because of the reduced contact hours. And so to some extent, and, and my co-director Stuart was also a graduate of that same program, a lot of our education has come post-university. And I, th- and I think that's true of most architects. And whether or not you, you choose to sort of focus on a particular area of interest that you might be kind of moved towards by the kind of opportunities that you get in the workplace or whether you simply just retain a passion and an interest in, in teaching or, or the kinds of um, theory and sort of cultural education that you might get from a university and you continue to sort of foster that. I, I don't know, but I, I, think, I think it's really important not to stay in one place um, and not to assume that once you've got the slip of paper, that's it, you're an architect and you're just making buildings and kind of moving on. Because without that kind of lifelong commitment to architecture, I really don't know that you ever truly realise, A, your potential, but also um, are able to tap into the real reimbursement that you get from being an architect, which is being passionate about what you do and taking advantage of the fact that this is a discipline that is constantly evolving, constantly updating itself, that technology is always moving at a rapid rate, ideas on architecture are rapidly shifting, And if you check out of that conversation, then your buildings will be poor and I think your experience of the profession will be as well. Yeah, I I don't think you can ever be too young or too old. I mean, if I just think about the symposium we're organising at the moment and, um, you know, speaking to Krishna Doshi, who's 93 years old and still goes to work every day, I mean, if you speak to him, he's still inspired and he's still still being inspired. You know, I think um, I am paid. He was in the office when he was 100 years old. Fumiko Maki goes to work every day and he's 92. You know, so it's one of those enduring careers. People don't bundy off when they're 
65. Glenn Merkert is still practicing and uh, still teaching until this last year that we just finished. So age is not a limit. But I also think at the beginning, uh, you know, when I think about the work that we did, in, we've done in India with the preschoolers and how much they know about shaping their environment and how different the environment, the preschools that they've made with their own hands and in collaboration with the volunteers as makes their lives delightful. You can, you can see that it shapes people's lives from the very moment they're born. Buildings touch everyone's lives. And so the more we imbue that in our education, whether it's a general education or architectural education, the more people have an appreciation and understanding of the power of architecture. I did this fantastic class when my kids were little at the local school and they and we met, they got all you know cereal boxes and all those sorts of boxes and I photographed every building in this street this very long street which has every building type along it and they did it and they colored it and they built it and and then they had this urban proposition and there were two groups and one of them made this sort of like extraordinary sort of houseman square because we everyone goes to this like little intersection after school and gets their groceries and ice creams and all the rest of it and they redesigned it to this urban place and they got rid of the cars in one of them the other one made it sort of like this look san Gimignano hill town sort of like with little winding streets and they all had a narrative and a clarity about why these places were important for the community. One was about not having cars and having places where people could gather, where the old people could sit. Children at a very young age understand architecture and they understand space and they understand what they do and how they shape life. So I think no one is too young and no one is too old to engage in architectural education and understanding. Yes, I, I would agree that... Uh... Uh, no one is too young or no one is too old in architecture education. But behind that, we would have to take into consideration also the cultural milieu where we are in. So like in a Japanese system, you have to ride on that rail and be on that rail in order for you to do what you have to do. You have to be a very strong personality and a, with a, a very strong drive, I guess, to maybe do something that is not on the rail. And similarly, it would be the same to Singapore also uh, because of the type of education and because of the culture that is there. You have to do this. After you do this, you do this. After you do this, you do this. And then when they come into university, they are still not sure whether they want to do this or do that. And then there are many considerations that they would have to take into consideration. And then the opinion of the parents it's a very strong opinion. So it will determine whether they will do it or not do it. And so I, I, as I was saying that age does not matter if you have a very strong will and you really want to do it. But I guess that part of that would be dependent also on the cultural uh, situation we're in and then the, the, the mechanics, the invisible systems that actually guide the systems and the society we're in. So yeah, architecture is wonderful until old age, until dying, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> Uh, as a child, I always imagined that, okay, I wanted to do architecture, but along the way, I realized that there are many things actually that are not as I imagined it to be, but the dream is there that, oh, this is possible that one can contribute to this. So uh, I think that doing architecture is actually very fulfilling when you see that you've made people happy 
it can also be very distressing when you see people that you've made them unhappy about certain things. And, and, and so when you see this, so again, this balancing act on, on doing things. So as you mentioned, like working with the government and then working with a, maybe a, with a couple or with a young person, building a house would be very different. And, and opening these opportunities provides two different uh, sides of fulfillment also. And so going back to how we can help the students realize this. We actually have these undergraduate research opportunities for the students so that they can come up with certain things. And the university actually gives them money to actually pursue this with the guidance of a faculty member. And one of them uh, was actually these workers' dormitories in Singapore. I don't think Australia would have this problem, but it, it became the big issue of COVID because the way the dormitories were uh, designed. And so the students actually came and said that, oh, we would like to work on it. And so they have started this uh, research project. And so it's now uh, being looked at by the, the ministry itself. And then I think some people in the private industry are going to be funding it. So, so that's uh, one of the things I think that maybe when they come to architecture, despite the fact that they are not sure whether they want to do it, when they encounter this, they learn to love architecture. Thank you very much, Owen. Yeah, and you, you mentioned there, you know, I think anyone who's involved in architectural education, we're doing what we can to help the students. And a few years ago, uh, the British magazine, The Architects Journal, conducted a survey where one in four UK architecture students reported uh, mental health issues that were related to their studies. Why has this started to come up as a you know, more of a vocal thing that people are talking about? And what are some initiatives that, that each of your uh, universities are doing to try to combat any mental health issues that seem to be arising? Well, this is something very close to my heart as a, a dean and having gone through COVID where um, you might get late night calls or um, emails from students where you don't know where they are because we're all studying virtually, we're all working from home and you have a crisis call. There's nothing more confronting than dealing with this as a person of responsibility. So I feel very strongly about it that we need to uh, deal with this front on. And I'm very pleased to say that there is an ARC linkage grant, which is being led by Naomi Stead from Monash University in conjunction with the AACA, the Institute of Architects, and a um, number of government partners to actually look at this and, and find solutions. And I was actually interviewed for this um, research this week and asked, what are the solutions? And, you know, if I, I said, <laughs> God, if, if we had the solution, we wouldn't have the problem. But I do think, you know, globally, depression and anxiety has grown in the last five to 10 years exponentially. It is a contemporary malaise. And whether it's the rise of social media and you're comparing yourself to other people, like, you know, probably when I was young, there was enough anxiety about trying to do good and being a perfectionist as an architect. But to be a perfectionist in a world where you can see all your imperfections quite liberally across social media every single day of your life must make it even more challenging because it's even more heightened. So I think that may be part of the challenge, but it's it's not going to go away anytime soon. But I think the most important things is pastoral care, to actually reach out, to ask people if they're okay to actually set boundaries around what's, you know, expectations. I mean, I do think architecture attracts perfect, perfectionistic 
personality types, you can never actually fulfill everything you want to fulfill in terms of the end state. You you have to live with it and you may not be built exactly right or the budget was in the wrong place or or and there's a thousand reasons why you you don't get the perfect project. But we need to manage that perfectionism because it actually has health implications. We also need to manage work culture. The all-nighter is seen as a, you know, a not a badge of honour so much, but a rite of passage. And there's the expectations that you will work all night, every night to, to get a project done. And that translates into the work environment. And that if, you know, because we all went through it, the young people have to go through it too. We're not realizing that in fact it wasn't good for them and it's not good for these people either and we just it's a bit like sort of you know the the abused becomes the abuser and um we need to get over that we need to say enough already and i, I so i do think we've done a lot with work culture and i think parlor's done a, work, a lot in terms of revealing the you know the gender inequity but we also need to look at work inequity and and that is for you know all people, women, men, young, old, um, and so we need to have much more of a balance in how we treat work and our vocation because at the moment our vocation is damaging a lot of people and it's not good. It's really not good. It's an important uh, issue, I think. It's not really a problem, I think. They usually say that SUTD means stay until dawn and then so the students actually have a joke in this. And so they have all these t-shirts saying, I stayed up until dawn. So they were working until dawn. But I think that we have been managing it rather well because of the type of education and learning that they do. Uh, they start in their freshman studies, uh, having the cohort learning. And so they know each other, even if they're in other pillars. And so they help each other. And so the most important thing I think is that they know each other and they help each other and then you are in constant communication with them. So the line of communication uh, between them and, and myself and then my other members of the faculty and then also the administration staff is always open. And so we try to calibrate also is the workload too heavy? Is it not? And so the whole school is building it together. So we would have these conversations whereby we look into how things are being delivered in the studio and in the lectures. Is it, how can we make it better? So there is always a constant conversation that happens. So we would have a midterm review and then a final review and then try to improve things and then adjust where we need to adjust. And then in terms of the learning also, uh, such that the studio uh, would become that maybe central part, but you would have all these other modules around it, which relate to history, building science, technology, and then uh, computation, etc. We try to adjust the learning such that it would fit into what's happening in the studio. We align the, the schedule such that it does not uh, make them submit everything all at the same time, but actually uh, staggered in a way such that they would have time to actually do the things they have to do, and then realize that what they're learning in this subject is actually complementing what is to be in the studio where they have to integrate everything. So that is one part of it. And then besides the students also, the faculty would also need a bit of help also because we always think that the students would be the only one who would be having these issues. But I think the faculty would also have the issue maybe the mental issue, they would also have these also. So again, the conversation with them is very important as, as 
Helen was saying that having that conversation with them is very important. So while thinking about the things that happen within the school, one also has to project it outside of school. And so one has to see how they're doing with the uh, internship and how they will do with the employment. And, and so somehow you would be able to predict that there will be economic challenges because of the, of the situation. And so it will affect the internship take up, the employment take up. And so the university somehow uh, looked into this and devised ways such that it will help the students be able to continue with the research, maybe being taken under the care of the faculty members using the research money that the university gives to the faculty members to, for them to actually continue doing their internship. Or in the employment also to, to maybe uh, give them this uh, opportunity to be entrepreneurs also, or maybe to work with the faculty to give them that transition, maybe eventually into doing something else after these uh, challenging times. So the university uh, draw from its reserves because we have some reserves and then use this to actually help the students. So, so, so these are a few things to somehow address a few of the concerns. Uh, but I think that the most important thing is that we have that communication, constant communication, and then the empathy and to understand what really is the matter. Because sometimes we're speaking, but there may be something that is behind the words that we have to maybe somehow discover. So we, we try to do this also. And it is not only with the student, but also with the faculty. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, I guess that we've been talking more broadly about sort of, you know, pastoral care, having, making sure that students have an option and a place to go when they're either experiencing anxiety or noticing a downward spiral, either through depression or, or other things. And, um, and I think it's, it's something that's really worth acknowledging that you know, there have been really tragic outcomes for some students with mental health, you know, who have, and this is across all schools of architecture, um, at least that I, I know of in Australia, that, you know, suicide of architecture students, it shouldn't be something that's just a focus on the student themselves as being sort of unstable or having mental health, struggles with mental health. The environment in which they go into um, can either, you know, facilitate a different outcome if it is supportive enough and if they're aware of that. And I think it becomes really challenging because universities are international environments in the sense that we have students from a range of cultures and they have different means and ways of communicating distress or and so forth. So I think it is a really challenging issue. I don't think it's fully addressed if we are having students that are suiciding. So I think that it's probably an incredibly big challenge that really, you know, we have to reevaluate not only the pastoral care, but the communication that we have across cultures so that, you know, we're ensuring that there are means of ways in which students can express their distress and find support even in a university environment rather than just sort of, you know, the student support services, which is a generalist thing for the entire university. It almost seems like you need to have this really introduced very early in first year or freshman year that students know that there is a support system and it's something that they can go to within the school and within the faculty as well. 
And um, that certainly doesn't happen in my university. There are staff that do training in mental health, but in terms of having a pastoral care sort of person within the school that you could actually go to if you are experiencing or, you know, are, are noticing, you know, suicide ideation or, or a whole range of things, you know, it really is something that needs to be a high priority because it's not only people's lives, but also the way that the university effectively deals with that. It needs to be very upfront and, you know, an acknowledgement that there are sort of pressures that are associated with the course, but there could be also external pressures a whole range of things that may not be apparent as the student is progressing through different courses. Yes, I think to that point, I should have added that, in fact, we, we do have a pastoral care program and we have a buddy system. And this was developed in uh, concert with Betha, which is our Built Environment Student Association. And so every student who comes in gets a buddy so from another year so that there's always someone to check in on them especially in that first year, because we also have a lot of international students. So there's a lot of cross-cultural issues, as you've, you've rightly pointed out, Carol goes. And um, the other thing that we are doing is mental health training. So we had all of our staff, core staff, have done mental health first aid. Um, and that was just primarily because of some of the kind of very close calls that we've had and also the, the gap between referring students to the resources. And we also have an induction. So this week it's orientation week for us here and there's an induction and, and it has on it all the things to do and things to look for and things to look out for in your colleagues. So that's especially for students. And that also goes into every single course so that if they, you know, like, so they keep on getting reminded about what the support systems are available to them so that they know and they don't need to call the dean at 10 o'clock at night. But um, that still happens anyway. And at least they can do that and that they know that I, there is someone I can call. Um, that's the main thing. But we do have all sorts of checks and balances. But, you know, it, it's always difficult to make sure you catch everyone and that everyone is, is going to be accessible and visible when they need to be visible to say, are you okay? Yeah, maybe just to add on that also, uh, each student is actually assigned a mentor. And so uh, I would have a few mentees also. So I follow them from the very first, when they enter the university until they graduate from the university. So when they're doing their internship also, I would know how, I would receive the reports from the supervisors actually on how the mentorship or this internship is actually happening. So in that way, a certain communication is uh, created and then a channel uh, of, of maybe uh, being more familiar of who this person is and then and then maybe they feel more at ease to tell me certain things which they're unable to tell other people or to the other their own mentors also so yeah it, it's good to have maybe something as a system like this to 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 help in in a certain way yeah. thanks Erwin and so just to finish off internationally, there's a, lot, there's a lot of similarities between architecture schools, but then there are some differences that make certain institutions unique. So I'd love to sort of go around the group and, and to hear one thing from your educational experience, both as a student or as a teacher, where you thought one institution or another set it apart from the rest of the pack. So if we started with you, Carol, uh, if you wanted to tell us a unique story about it, a UQ or, or somewhere else, that would be fantastic. Oh, that's a great question. I think that my experience at 
at UQ was my exposure, I guess, to, I mean, from my own cultural bias, you know, really, um, my own um, exposure to Indigenous architecture. And I think that from my own cultural background, just the knowledge that Indigenous people did build things that have intelligence and understanding and were really fit for purpose environmentally, you know, had sort of technical resolution. I think that appreciation that in simplicity in in architecture, I think that was a huge eye-opener where it wasn't just focused on this highly technical object, um, which was, you know, resource intensive and um, design intensive, but, you know, fit for purpose and, and, and functional, but also having great intelligence behind it. And I think that was a, a huge shifting point for me to look at other cultures as well and look at other cultures across the world and, and the architectures. And, and, and essentially every culture in the world has come from that point. And in Indigenous Australia, you know, the isolation really, um, it's really quite interesting to see too when colonisation happened in Australia, how Indigenous people adapted their architecture to the changing environment. You know, so I, I think that appreciation for me was, was um, something that opened my eyes to the world, but also to see how architecture and its technological resolution, the design can actually enhance the contemporary world that Indigenous people live in because they're engaging with technology. They're adapted to a very much, uh, you know, we're very modern world focused. And, um, and so... Uh, you know, I, I think that's when I saw the power of what architecture can do in, in people's lives. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Aaron, did you want to tell us your, your unique story? Uh, maybe one thing that uh, jumps out at me of my experience of not, not extensive experience by any means of visiting some of the universities around Australia was uh, a few years ago we were invited to give a talk at Newcastle. And that was great. And at the end of the lecture, we were invited to go back to the studio and we were told that if, if we kind of sat in a, Stuart and I sat in a communal area, that the students would just come down and talk to us about their projects. And based on my experience of other universities, I thought, well, okay, this is going to be a bit of free time for Stu and I to, to spend alone. And I was amazed that the students immediately and continually proceeded to come down and present their work to us and the culture that existed in the university at that school at that time was really amazing and I think it's probably a product partly of it being quite a small school but I also think that it was a product of a program that they had running at that time which I believe has now been discontinued where they had a number of extremely esteemed um, visiting professors who would come to the school, so Lindsay and Kerry Clare, Peter Stutchbury, Rick Lepastria. So they were used to every week or fortnight having these luminaries of the Australian profession coming, sitting in that communal space and were in the habit of taking their work, coming down from the mezzanine and presenting it to them. And I thought that, that that level of engagement was really inspiring. It was really inspiring that that culture had been established it was also really inspiring to think that there was a university that had that kind of proximity to and um, frequent interaction with practitioners, which, which was also great. 
and and the kind of freedom and confidence to be able to speak face to face with someone who had been you know well very well established in the profession and one little kind of anecdote I might finish with is I remember one of the students was showing me their work and I had a critique to make of the work and I sort of pointed out something I can't remember what it was about the particular project that they were showing me and said oh you know I'm not I'm not so sure about this and and the student's response was oh well Stutch thinks that it's fine and um that was kind of um an inter- interesting moment for me to be kind of um indirectly coming up against Peter Stutchbury and his esteemed opinion, but also to be reminded that there could be a place where you could go to learn, where you could be on such free and easy terms with these practitioners that you would, A, refer to an Australian gold medalist as Stutch, and you would also feel quite comfortable challenging another practitioner who happens to disagree with their opinion. So, yeah, that, that, that was a really interesting experience. And I think it's something that's also mirrored at universities like the Obedient School of Architecture at Bond, which is quite small and has a really great culture. And, and I think um, the university in Tassie is, is a little bit the same. Fantastic. Now we'll have to all try to refrain from calling him Stutch unless we've actually met him once, I think. <laughs> so, uh, Erwin, did you want to give us uh, your story? It can be a long story, Daniel. <laughs> I, I, yeah, so when I heard you ask the question, I, I looked back and then I think that I would always remember my education at the University of the Philippines uh, as something that is very special because it made me conscious of what identities, what I can do, and then the indigenous things that we would have for the Philippines. And I think that it also made me uh, realize that architecture is a joyful uh, activity. And then it is a joyful activity because of the people you're working with. I don't know, it was a confluence of uh, people. I think the son of the prime minister at that time, uh, Mr. Verata was my schoolmate, the the son of uh, one of the great this architects in the Philippines, uh, Hussein Appeal, and the greatest writer, uh, Carmen Guerrero Appeal, was also a classmate. And then even the Minister of Justice and all these were, we were all in the same uh, class. And then it was very interesting because we were working on certain things, questioning what is Filipino identity. And then we would be working on the very high end uh, projects, sometimes uh, because even the daughter of Imelda Marcos was our schoolmate also. And, and so we would be in these things, but we would also be going to the slum areas because how do you improve the settlements? How do you do this? And it made me realize the possibilities of architecture, but also it made me realize the limits and the helplessness we have as architects. And, and, and so with this questioning of identity, I went to study for my master's uh, degree in Kyoto. And then it opened a new world for me. I was doing the traditional arts, uh, tea ceremony, flower arrangement, and all that. Because I think that the tea room actually uh, opens a possibility into understanding a lot about Japanese aesthetics and Japanese way of looking at things. So while doing this, I had opportunity also to be learning from the great tea room specialist, Professor Masao Nakamura. So, so again, how you build things, the importance of materials, the importance of proportions. And then it is complemented by the, the apprenticeship I did with uh, Tadao Ando. So I was going into the office of Tadao Ando and learned how do you practice, which is very different from the norm of practicing a certain philosophy, a certain attitude, and then a certain way of doing things. I think I like it that 
he, he would always have a conversation with all of us students in the evening. And then we would be in a round table having ramen. And then he would be talking. At that point, my Japanese was not very good, but his wife, Kato-san, would always be explaining a few of the things that he was sharing. And, and I think it was uh, very, very good to have that experience of having that time with him and then learning how you actually do architecture. We also had like Saturday uh, sessions whereby we go for a maintenance and then we look at the piece of architecture that has been created and we clean the concrete, we repaint the balusters and all this. So I think that was a very uh, wonderful lesson for me. And then at the University of Tokyo, uh, while I was working on the drawings, Professor Maki was an advisor. So there is always something very royal with Professor Maki in the way he would conduct things. And, and because of the nature of the, of the studios, we would have interactions with the Tokyo Institute of Technology with Professor uh, Kasoro Shinohara. And then at that time, I think it was the bubble era. And then it brought many people to Tokyo. And so I had opportunity to run a studio for OMA, Elias Engeles, and then Rem Kulhas in the workshops in Tokyo. And similarly, having interactions with uh, Bernard Chumi and then uh, of course, Tom Hennigan uh, was there. He's a very good friend. That's how we, 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 we got to know each other. And it was also the beginning of friendship with uh, Kasuyo Sejima because it was the first time she uh, became independent from uh, Toyo Ito. And then she was designing the whole exhibition and the whole setup of the workshop. So I think that in many ways, these uh, three places uh, helped to define perhaps an identity and, and a set of experiences in Singapore opens that possibility of actually uh, confirming or denying or looking at all these previous experiences. And then also opens the opportunity to actually see how the government works and then how big projects can be realized. And then when you think of something, it can be done right away. And, and so I, I think that because of the vision and then the desire of Singapore to do certain things that these are possible, that one can do it together with other people, with the students also. So maybe that is the story that is ongoing for me and then that is carried over from the past. And I'm thankful that we are having this conversation. It's a continuing part of the story being part of all of you. Thank you. Thanks, Earl. And you, you can definitely hear why you're still so engaged with education. It's been such a major part of your life with such incredible people and experiences. And Helen, if you wanted to give us the, the final story about your um, education. Well, I might share two stories too. One was at Sydney University. Um, I studied under a range of very alternative hippie types. And one of those was called James, who was a great activist. And together we, with a group of students, we built the Autonomous House and I lived there for a brief period. And it was the beginning of the sustainability movement, although it wasn't called sustainability back then, but it was about alternative technologies, conservation of resources. It, we were completely off the grid and it was a different way of thinking about the world and its resources. And so that was very seminal and influential in, in, for me. But we also were very conscious of urban activism. There was a lot of, you know, proposals for freeways through the city, for demolition of old parts of the inner Sydney, like Willamaloo and, and, and before that, The Rock. And so becoming an, an activist about how to protect city and look after the city was something that we did and we did a lot of propositions to counter the status quo. So that side of my activism uh, phase of life, but also my view about the city being an, an important construct. It wasn't just about the building, but it was about 
architecture as part of a larger urban fabric. And so I, I think that really put in me this sense of the social conscience, an environmental conscience and a responsibility to the greater public, the public good. And that's modified, I suppose, or directed my public interest career. But then as a counterpoint to that, I went and studied overseas at Columbia because I love cities and I wanted to be in New York. And it was Harvard or New York and uh, New York won out because there was a lot of things to do outside university as well as inside. So it was a great time of music and nightclubs and and all the rest of it. But also being in this incredible city at the centre of the universe where every single week you just had the who's who of architecture. And they, they were in the canteen or they were coming to give you a crit in your studio class. You know, Kenneth Frampton just taught history and theory. Just he was the guy. That was his job. <laughs> and even like just um, a couple of years ago, I went back for like a 30-year reunion and I sat next to him. I was talking about this model that I'd made for him when I was in his class. And he goes, I've still got that model on my wall. And I was like going, oh, my God, I can't believe that because it was this um, extraordinary thing where someone with his mind opened your world out of this very local view that we had in Sydney about Sydney, which I still am very uh, tied to, um, but place and environment to the world of architecture beyond our shores and having this international contact with architects and students from all over the world from so many different countries and so many different cultures and and I almost felt like I was going to university for the first time it was a completely different architectural education and um, I went to continue to work and live in in New York for a number of years after that but it really was critical to my thing about I, I'm interested in cities and I really became an urbanist after that so from something which was more about social activism to the making of cities um, and the urbanity of cities and, and what sort of places they are being driven by very strong ethos of theory and, and history and contemporary practice, global practice, I came to where I am today. But education can can shape you in so many ways and, and you don't know whether it's going to shape the kind of designer you are or the kind of person you are or the moral compass. And I think for me, it did both. And I think that's a great gift that education can bring. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Helen, Aaron, Carol, and Erwin. Thank you so much for joining us on this special podcast episode with the Asia Pacific Architecture Festival. It's been so wonderful hearing all of your stories and opinions about architectural education. It's such a, a huge area that I think, you know, even after you leave studying architecture, you will always be thinking about it in the rest of your career. And I'm not sure how many other professions actually do that, whether you're, you're always sort of linking back to, to that education. It sort of it never, ever stops really. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. And we're looking forward to releasing this podcast as part of APAF. And yeah, we hope to connect with you all again in the future, hopefully for another season of Hearing Architecture. So thank you so much for your involvement. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a special episode for the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast collaboration between APAF and Hearing Architecture. 
If you enjoyed this discussion, we have another special APAF episode about architecture and entrepreneurism with Caitlin Butler, Chris Ferminger, Jacob Nash, Anna O'Gorman, Ken Yuktasevi, and Georgia Burks. To learn more about APAF and all the events, presentations, and competitions that are running both in person and online, please visit asiapacificarchitecturefestival.com. And if you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review, and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Carol Go-Sam, Helen Lockhead, Aaron Peters, Erwin V-Ray, and Georgia Burks for their contribution to the architecture profession, architectural education, and the community. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio and the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the APAF production team was Georgia Burks and Jacinta Reedy. Directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.